Welcome back to Season 2 of the Learning Curve Podcast at ECSD. It's great to have you here with us once again. Today, we want to dive into learning communities and our own responsibilities in making them welcoming and fruitful for all invested parties. As you tune in, I encourage you to take a moment and reflect on your own journey of growth, both personally and professionally. Think about those memorable moments in your life that truly showcase your own growth. For me, a recent realization came when I revisited a course outline I had written back in 2018. As I read through this policy, I was taken aback by some of the assessment rules that I had set forth. One in particular made me cringe. It was the deduction of 5% for every day an assignment was late. In hindsight, I recognize that such a policy conflated grades with student behaviors, and it didn't support an environment of risk-taking for my students. This policy created anxiety for many of my students, and if I were to use that policy again, I'm sure the same thing would happen. Assignments were always late, students were anxious and stressed, and we weren't risk-taking in the classroom. Looking back on that moment with Grace, I acknowledge that if I were in 2023, the policy wouldn't be part of my course outline anymore. Over the past five years, I've gained knowledge and insights in assessment practices, My experience in going down to elementary and teaching grade four has also taught me effective strategies to address behaviors without compromising grades, such as personalized one-on-one conferences to help me understand my students' knowledge and abilities, and learning more about universal design for learning and how I can plan for such a framework. Reflecting on this journey, I'm feeling peace. It's perfectly okay to make mistakes along the way. What truly matters is embracing growth and learning from those experiences. As the wise Maya Angelou said, do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. So as you continue to listen to this episode, I invite you to take some time to ponder those remarkable moments in your life that illustrate your own growth. Please join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Loving God, we gather here today, guided by your grace, to embark on another season of growth and discovery. As we open our hearts and minds, we embrace the power of a growth mindset. Grant us the courage to embrace challenges, the resilience to overcome setbacks, and the humility to seek knowledge and learn from every experience. May this podcast be a beacon of inspiration, fostering a community of lifelong learners. Bless our listeners with open hearts and receptive spirits, that they may be transformed by the wisdom and insights shared. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'd like to also take a moment to acknowledge that we are recording on the traditional land of Treaty 6, the ancestral territory of diverse Indigenous peoples. We also recognize the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 4, and the contributions of Inuit and other Indigenous communities who have nurtured this land for generations. With gratitude, we honour their stewardship and resilience. And as we embark on this journey of growth and learning within this episode, We acknowledge the importance of embracing a growth mindset. We understand that true progress lies in recognizing and respecting the wisdom, knowledge, and teachings passed down by Indigenous cultures. We commit ourselves to embodying the principles of of growth mindset as we strive for personal and collective growth, and as we work towards restoring and honoring the truth and reconciliation calls to action. In unity, We call upon all our communities to engage in a profound understanding of the diverse peoples who call this land home. Together, let us foster an environment where the growth mindset flourishes, where the richness of Indigenous cultures is celebrated, and where the path to reconciliation is paved with respect, empathy, and collaboration. May our collective journey towards growth be guided by humility, compassion, and a shared commitment to truth and understanding. So, in today's episode, we have an exciting agenda packed with insightful discussions and thought-provoking content. Here's what's in store for you. Jennifer Espeo-Hersimiak will lead us through learning about neuroscience of the brain. This segment explores the fascinating world of neuroscience and its connection to the learning, to learning and mindset. We'll delve into the intricate workings of the brain, uncovering how it adapts, grows, and rewires itself in response to learning experiences. Today's topic is the learning brain. For our interview today, we are joined by Alana Symington. Alana is one of our division principals with Leadership Support Services for Edmonton Catholic Schools. Alana will share from her career experiences what it means to be a leader who walks beside others as we build learning communities for the betterment of society. 
During our two minutes of Mindset Matters, Tracy Halusawaskiu will help us dive deeper into the importance of mindset in ourselves as teachers, in our students, and in our schools for collective efficacy for school improvement. Today's topic is, as you may have guessed, growth mindset. And in our final segment, we present Lit Literature, where Alison Gabucci will review books and articles to help us grow in our assessment practices. Today's book review will be on Unmistakable Impact by Jim Knight. That wraps up the agenda for the episode. And on that note, let's jump in. Welcome to the Learning Lab, where we decode the brain secrets of learning. I'm your host, Jennifer Espeo Harasimiak, ready to take you on a synaptic saunter as we explore the captivating world of the learning brain. The human brain is arguably the most complex and fascinating organ of the human body. It's responsible for our ability to learn, remember, and think. As teachers, our primary goal is to have our students learn, remember, and think. So it makes sense for us to know a little bit about how the different structures of our brain become activated during the learning process. Come along with me on a little journey in our own imaginations to figure this out. Let's pretend you're in class right now. Your teacher has decided to start the lesson with a bell ringer and asks you to jot down the most important part of what you learned in yesterday's class. When you hear the instructions, the sensory information travels from your ears to your cerebrum. The cerebrum is that pinkish gray wrinkly structure that usually comes to mind when we think of the brain. Specifically, the temporal lobe of the cerebrum, located near your ears and temples, is responsible for processing auditory stimulation, like the sound of your teacher's voice, and it also plays a role in memory. Because your teacher understands that it is always good to have both auditory and visual instructions, you also read her instructions on the smart board. This information goes from your eyes and then straight to the occipital lobe of your cerebrum, which is found near the back of your head. As you've probably already guessed it, the occipital lobe is responsible for processing visual stimuli. Human brains are pattern-seeking organs, so the next thing that happens is both the written and heard word signals are sent to another part of the brain, Wernicke's area, which is responsible for making meaning of the sounds you hear and words you read as language. Once you've made sense of what you've read and heard, your frontal lobe, right behind your forehead, makes decisions to try to remember, to activate your hippocampus, to retrieve the memories about what you learned yesterday, and then your parietal lobe, the top of your head, works with your cerebellum, tucked right underneath your occipital lobe, to coordinate your movements as you reach for your pencil and write down what you remember. That's a lot going on in just a second or two and it happens every day throughout the day. Our brains are engaged in a continuous process, receiving sensory information, processing it, making decisions, and initiating actions. This constant cycle of input and response is the essence of learning. And the learning process relies on a phenomenon known as synaptic plasticity, which describes the brain's ability to modify the connections between neurons, called synapses, in response to experience. When we acquire new knowledge and skills, these synapses and neural pathways become stronger, facilitating the flow of information within our brains. By establishing connections between our perceptions, memories, and attention, we enhance our capacity for thinking, reasoning, and problem solving. In essence, this is cognition, the pinnacle of intellectual ability. The brain, as a complex and dynamic organ, plays a vital role in our learning, memory, and cognitive functions. Gaining an understanding of how the brain operates empowers us to improve our learning strategies, enhance our memory retention, and elevate our overall cognitive abilities. So teachers, before we part, let me leave you with one final point to ponder. What would you like to learn about the brain to help you maximize learning in your classroom? Let us know in the comments.
Alana, welcome to the Learning Curve podcast at ECSD. We're so happy to have you here today. Thanks so much, Jen. Can you share your background a little bit about how you even became a leader in education in the first place? That's a good question. Um, so um, I'm a Saskatchewan grad a long time ago and became a teacher at a very diverse uh, school and um, was there for a number of years and I was a consultant. Then I became an assistant principal and then a principal and now in my current role as a division principal in leadership services. So how do you think that journey has shaped your leadership style and approach to kind of creating a diverse and inclusive learning environment? I think that first experience really impacted what I do now and what I did in my schools. Um, when I moved to my first school, it was outside of my realm of understanding of anything I had ever seen before. Incredibly culturally diverse, uh, incredibly learning diverse. Um, and so I realized very early on as a young teacher that I needed to learn myself. I needed to listen. I needed to really um, have my students and my parents that I worked with teach me because I didn't understand the worlds that they were coming from. I didn't understand their approaches to education. It was very different than what I had. And that really has impacted me my whole teaching career and my administrative career is that role as leader, as learner. It's really interesting how you know, you can have these situations where you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And then it just turns into this wheel of keep learning. Yeah. So like based on all of that, what, what does instructional leadership mean to you? And, and, and how do you ensure that educators in, in ECSD are providing high quality education for our students? Well, first of all, uh, instructional leadership to me is access for all students, right? The ability for all students to learn. And it's really that idea that what we do in the classroom really provides for the needs of our students. I'm not anybody's supervisor. I'm not anybody's boss. I walk beside. So I don't ensure that anything happens. What I do is give them experiences and good practice and dialogue in how we continue to learn as leaders to provide that good education. And I think in our division, we're lucky because we have so many support people around our leaders to help support in their growth and the, the challenges that come along with that. Um, because often we find that, you know, we want to rely back on what, what's worked for us in the past. And our past is changing all the time. And our future is changing all the time. So how do we move that forward for our teachers, for our leaders, and most importantly for our students? What does that become for them? And so what does that access mean now that didn't mean 20 years ago? What does it, what will it mean in 15 years? Who knows? Right. So coaching for change and coaching for always meeting the student needs. Uh, you keep mentioning it's about the students and yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in, in this work that you do is walking alongside our administrators. Um, what, what challenges have you faced in, in, in coaching them and working with them in creating more equitable and culturally responsive learning environments? And, and how even, you know, what those challenges, whatever they might be, how, how have you responded or adjusted these challenges? You know, I think, I think the challenges are the same as they were 30 years ago when I started my career. It's the learning and it's the constant evolution of that learning. Um, you know, I, I very clearly remember the day when we learned about one of our first neurodiverse students. The diagnosis was new to us all. We didn't know what that looked like. Not that those diagnoses or not that those experiences hadn't happened for students in the past. It was just the first time in a school we were hearing about those diagnoses. And so again, it became, how do we learn about that? How do we do that? And I think for sometimes, oftentimes it's trial and error. When we're learning about uh, our students and what they need, whether it's culturally diverse, whether it's learning diverse, whatever it happens to be, it's that learning process. And that learning process takes time and we're going to make mistakes. And it's that okay to make mistakes. And I think as the challenges often with uh, leaders now and teachers, and as again, as the same as it's been, is that willingness to make that mistake. Let's try, let's work with our students, let's talk to them, let's talk to our teachers. What do they want to try? What do they want to do? And be okay with that. And that not every time is that going to work perfectly, but we're going to learn in that process as well. How do we meet those needs? And I think, you know, we've come such a long way in, in, from that stage, sage on the stage. And it's really trying to engage our students, engage our parent community and pay, engage our colleagues as to how do we do this? 
What worked for you? How can we try something different? Because if we look at, you know, what is our ultimate goal when we're talking about student learning? It's that they get it. How do we get there? And it's going to be different with every student. The challenge then always becomes is, okay, it may be different with every student. And those are our challenges, you know, but when we go back to those good principles of understanding by design, and when we look at those UDL processes of, you know, what's good for one really benefits the other, we see amazing, amazing growth take place. And it's just really promoting those because sometimes people get overwhelmed, oh, you know, but if we really go back to those bits and pieces of what's good for one and it's going to benefit us all is not more work, but it's a learning process. I like how you're talking about all of our invested parties here. We're not just talking about students, although they are our primary focus. We're not just talking about staff. We're also talking about our families. So mm-hmm. I wonder what what does it look like for you and your role in terms of engaging families and community members um, to to help everyone uh, make sure that their perspectives and experiences are valued and incorporated into the whole educational experience mm-hmm. of the student? Well, in my current role, I have less to do with the with parent communities. So I'm going to reach back into my school-based mm-hmm. principal role. Mm-hmm. And again, it was every community I went to trying to understand them, understand where they're coming from. And it really I love this line and human resources uses this often being curious, really spending a lot of time listening. I always thought IPP meetings, those intervention meetings, all those different meetings were really a good time, not for me to tell what needs to happen, but for me to listen as to what the parent's perspective was on that as the ultimate um, teacher in that child's life. And then how can we work together to move that forward? Not always do we agree But where could we come to some common ground so that we're reinforcing the same things moving forward? And I think that goes for all of our students is where do we work with those parents, understanding perhaps where they've come from, if it's a different different culture, uh, what they understand about their child's learning needs, um, what what their goals and expectations are. Um, You know, we often have parents who sometimes have very high goals and expectations for their child. I think that's great. Even so, sometimes that's really frustrating when we know as educators that kid's going to have a really hard time getting there. But how do we work then with the parents and saying, okay, I think that's awesome. I love that growth mindset. I want their kids to achieve. I think we have to have high expectations for our kids. But the high expectation for your child may be different than the high expectation for another child. And so how do we identify with our parents, with the guardians, what that is going to be and how do we how do we work that into? And I think it ultimately comes down to us uh, stepping back a little bit from our ego and really listening to parents, listening to students, listening to our colleagues, because we're learning. We got to learn. It's a job, right? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm hearing that it's a lot about listening and that that ultimate skill that HR talks about is being curious, probably one of my favorite skills. Um, so I, I'm wondering when you're coaching administrators and school leaders, what what are the key skills that that you're hoping to um, help them develop and and really hone? I think that comes down to really the, you know, that idea of instructional leadership kind of comes to four ideas as a guy kind of think of. Um, first of all, it's engaging in those instructional conversations. What's happening in the classroom? What's working? What's not working? How do we move that forward? What professional development do we need? All those kind of things. Second piece is how do I create a positive climate within my school so that my teachers are now being willing to try, willing to move forward, willing to access PD? How do I create that collaboration between staff? We're People are powerful. Uh, we're, We're powerful when we're together. We can come up with great ideas when we're together. So how do we create that collaboration in our school? And then how do we really access the right resources that we're going to need to get that going forward? So basically, I always say, how do you get your staff on the same boat so that we're moving in the same direction and working together, paddling that boat to make our school the very best it can be for our students and for the instruction that they receive? I love that. How to get on the same boat. It's very nice. <laughs> um, so with that, what what advice would you give to other school division leaders who are looking to improve their approach to approach to instructional leadership and creating more equitable and culturally responsive learning environments? Well, if I could give any advice, um, and, you know, I think it is really that sit back, listen first, and then 
talk to talk to the people around you. Um, I always say things like, you know, culture isn't something that is a problem to be solved. It's something to understand. So why is the culture of a building in such a way that it is? And how do I understand that so then I can move it forward? And so when we have a culture in a school, a positive climate for our staff to work in, where they want to be there, where they're engaged, where our students want to be there and they're engaged, we can do amazing things. And so ultimately, for a, a division, a district, individual school-based leaders, it is to look at what is it, the why, the why of our culture, and what is it that we ultimately want to accomplish. When we talk about school and education, ultimately, we want the best education, the best instruction, the best teaching and learning for our kids. Part of that is our teachers are powerful, but they're not powerful in isolation. We need a powerful division by working together. So if we're thinking about, we're talking about teaching and learning, and we're talking about like the, the advice, oftentimes we think about teaching and learning as separate from assessment and, you know, assessment is my jam. So yeah. I want to get right there. You know, how do you think assessment, not grading, yeah. but assessment um, practices uh, are, are evolving to, to better promote this, this equity and cultural responsiveness for our students. And, and, and what, what do you think would be your next steps? If you could be the ultimate decision, <laughs> what would be your next steps for Edmonton Catholic schools in, in order to prepare for these changes as, as our classrooms evolve and as our practices evolve, especially within assessment? Well, first of all, I think the the direction we're going with assessment is is huge it, and we've done a great job and that's kudos to the assessment consultants and learning services um and the schools of course and i think that ultimately again when we talk about that collaboration we talk about that culture it really comes back to that idea of formative right how are we responding to our students in their needs how are they showing what they know how and why why is it one way and we're moving away from that we're moving away to those from those individual assessments that show one thing to how can they uh, differentiate and show different ways of knowing? Because what is our ultimate goal? Our ultimate goal is, do they know the information that we're trying to teach? With our cultural diversity and our neurodiversity, kids show that differently. So what is our ultimate goal in education? And lots of that comes from our formative. Do we understand, do we really know our kids? Do we really understand what they need to know? I always like to tell a little story because, Jen, you know I do that. <laughs> I do. Years and years and years ago when I was uh, teaching, uh, I was teaching a language arts class, grade 8 language arts class, and I had a group of students, um, and we had grouped this particular group of students who were reading at least two grade levels below, or they were ELL learners. And so they were a very culturally diverse group, and they struggled academically. And so we spent a lot of time working with this group of students on what were the most important things they need to know in the program of studies versus the nice to knows. But what was most important in that whole process was that kids were able to tell us what they were learning and why they were there. And so one of the assignments that the students struggled with in, in that particular group was understanding instructions. So I flipped it on them and I said, OK, guys, you need to teach me something whatever you're good at, whatever your strength is, whatever you want to teach me, you need to teach it to me and the rest of the class. You need to write out the instructions and then you need to be teacher. Well, in that process, kids, we learned all thing, all kinds of things about kids. I learned how to make African candy. I learned how to shoot a three-pointer, right? Like I learned some dance moves nobody's ever going to see, but I learned all those things. And again, the kids were able to then break down what the instructions were. And again, did they accomplish it? Absolutely. They accomplished it in so many different ways. Do they all have to shoot a three-pointer or make African candy? No, but ultimately what were we trying to do? And so I think it really is in our assessment practices and where we're moving forward in assessment is really going back to what is our ultimate goal? Our ultimate goal is that kids can show us what they know and it doesn't have to look the same for every kid because equal is not equitable. And so how do we look at that equi equity for our kids? Show me what you know. How do you, can you show me what you know and what can that look like? But they have to know what they don't know as well. So that formative assessment from our instructors, our in instructional leaders is so incredibly important because this is where we're going. Do they know what they're supposed to learn? Do they know how they're supposed to get there? And can they show me in a way that is culturally responsive, neurodiverse responsive, and still gets to where we want them to be? 
say that better myself. That was, <laughs> uh, yeah, like we're looking at basically universal design for learning. One hundred percent, right? We're looking at multiple modes of engagement and expression and and representation and honoring the identities of our students as we do so, and and knowing that you know assessment is part of responsive teaching, so we can meet the needs of the kids in front of us. Right Absolutely, now. Yeah. and I th- and I think we've come a long way in terms of assessment isn't that unit end exam. Yes. Uh, assessment isn't that one static piece. Mm-hmm. It's those good teaching practices that we mm-hmm. do every day. Oh, I notice that that child is not getting this. What can I do? How can I circle back around to get that kid back on where we need them to be? Oh, I see a behavior coming. Well, do we have engagement there? Is that behavior actually a behavior? Is that a behavior because they, the material's over their head or, or not challenging them or whatever it happens to be? And again, Teaching in, uh, is a hard job. Mm-hmm. It's a hard job, and our classes are more and more diverse, and that's a hard job. But it really is going back to those universal designs. And what can we do that's going to be powerful for all? Um, can you tell me more about you know how it is that you engage in coaching in your role? Oh, it's the best part of my role. Um, so as you know, Jen, I run uh, six different training programs. So I work with teachers who want to become assistant principals or any kind of leader within our division. I work with assistant principals who want to become principals. And then I work with first and second year principals and first and second year assistant principals. And in those roles, um, lots of it is self-reflection and engagement with them on instructional leadership, on developing relationship, on all the LQS. But specifically with first year principals, I have the wonderful opportunity of going out to their schools four times a year. And these visits, again, are never evaluative. They are mentorship, I say walking beside. And so we discuss whatever's going on. And often it comes to instructional pieces. And what happens is, you know, often a new principal will come in with a new set of eyes and they'll be looking at the instructional practices of classroom teachers and wanting to move them forward. So we really engage in a conversation about what can that look like in their building, how to have that happen so that you get buy-in from your staff, how to engage in those conversations, how to build those relationships, because really ultimately to make any kind of those instructional changes, any kind of that growth mindset comes first from trust. So how do we develop trust in the instructor, in the principal's practice, the assistant principal's practice, so that teachers trust them, so that they move them forward again, so that they're willing to try, they're willing to make those mistakes. But again, that has to come from a safe place and a place of uh, a supportive culture. And so how do we build that culture in those first years as principals, as assistant principals in schools, that teachers are then going to buy in and they're willing to try. And sometimes that's changing very, very much. It's a change and people struggle with change. And so sometimes it's, you know, my, you know, wisdom, I hope, or advice on how do we facilitate change in a school and how do we build that culture that's willing to embrace change as difficult as it may be. Thank you. All right. So if it's about change and change is difficult most of the time, how how do we keep it positive and and looking in a this is going to be a good thing type of mindset as opposed to <laughs> how do you do that? So again <laughs> I think we come back to that whole idea at the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why? The why of it. Mm-hmm. So it's using data. Why are we why are we looking for this change? Are we just doing change for change? Because that is the most frustrating thing for teachers, principals, all of us, right? It's more, but do we see the reason as to why the change should occur? And it is really engaging in conversation with your staff and your students about what do they see? What do they see? People are smart, people are wise, teachers are are gifted individuals. What do they see as important? Why should we change? Why should there be a change? And it's a really, the most important, I think, in change is engaging in that conversation and lots of it ahead of time is this is what we're thinking. This is why we're thinking it. What do you think about that? And really engaging in those meaningful dialogues and being able to listen to the responses, not just going in with, we need this change and this is why we need this change and everybody else is wrong. It's really, okay, if we can have a difference of opinion, let's talk about it. Let's come just as we would with so many other things. Let's come to the table with all of our ideas and then let's be solution focused. And so what is it again? What is our ultimate goal? Our ultimate goal is a solution for whatever 
the situation happens to be, how do we move that forward? And everybody at the table plays the same amount of um, importance. It's not just the principal's decision. It's everybody on the table because ultimately the principal can say anything they want. If the teachers aren't on board, it's not changing anyways. Mm -hmm. So how do we, again, get in that boat, float it in the same direction, paddle in the same way. And again, it comes back to willingness to listen, willingness to not be the expert, willingness to put your ego aside and a willingness to create a culture that is going to want that for their students. So coaching through change for you is making sure everybody feels seen, heard, and valued as that change. It's always all about relationship, right? And, you know, I've never been an expert on anything. <laughs> and it's true. I, I really do look at every role I've been in as a huge learning journey. Most times I'm feeling like I'm going like this. And so it is understanding the perspectives of others and listening and then formulating where I want to go next with that decision. And I read a lot. Always good to read. <laughs> Always good to read. Even though we're making sure our, our, our people, everyone at the table is, you know, feeling seen, heard, and valued, we're listening. Um, when it comes to change, because it can be uh, contentious at times, what, what tips might you have for, for leaders in terms of how to engage in those difficult conversations when maybe you have someone that needs a little bit more encouragement and coaxing? That's interesting that you asked that question. The whole uh, second year principal training program mm -hmm. revolves around crucial conversations. And so we spend the entire year focusing on how to have a crucial conversation. And I use the word crucial rather than difficult because it's an important conversation. Sometimes they're difficult, but they're always important. So it's really a crucial conversation. And again, it is coming to that understanding that there are multiple sides to a story and there's multiple emotions to a story. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we're having those crucial conversations, I often encourage people to say, you know, tell me about that. I'd like to hear your perspective on the situation. You know, you seem really resistant to this change that we're trying to have at our school. I'd like to hear about that. And usually when people can identify it or not identify it, opens up a door. What we often do is we make assumptions about what the answer is going to be. And so we're already prepared with our retaliation that we never really truly listen. And so when we truly engage in a crucial conversation, we're truly, again, being curious, listening, and trying to understand where that other person is coming from. And so in doing so, we can then say, okay, this is what I'm hearing you say. This is my ideas on this. How can we meet in the middle? And often when people have to articulate their emotions, their feelings, their resistance to something, it takes away a lot of that fear. Because again, we're making assumptions about why they're doing, why they're doing, what they're doing. And it's engaging in those conversations. And so in through crucial conversations, often it doesn't only happen once. It may happen happen twice. But in learning about that person, it might be, okay, we need to make a small step before we make a big step. And so what is the first small step that you and I can make together as we're walking on this journey? I'm not expecting you to jump from A to Z. How can I get you from A to B? Just like we would do with our students, we want that same experience to happen with our teachers. And often we make assumptions again, because they're adults, they should know better. People have stuff, right? People have experiences. And again, they have background, they have knowledge. Let's honor that instead of fighting against that and say, okay, let's go from where you're at. So really honoring that, that human experience of the other person. 100%. We expect that for our students. Sometimes we don't expect that for our adults. And it's really important as leaders that we expect that for our adults. Give the grace that our adults need in our building. So in thinking about these crucial conversations, thank you for that. I will be using that, uh, that phrase from now on. In thinking about crucial conversations, you know, you, you talked about the emotions and the, the assumptions, um, but really allowing, just letting the person we're talking to have those emotions and feel what they're feeling. How... What's your advice for helping leaders to protect their own emotional state and, and keep themselves from spiraling into, you know, an emotion rabbit hole in, in, at the same time while they're also trying to honor the emotions and humanity of the person in front of them? 
So one of the things we often talk about is the idea of self-awareness and self-regulation. So we talk about self-regulation with students all the time. We want students to regulate, right? We want the regulated behaviors, all those kind of things. As adults, we need to be self-aware as what is my reaction to this situation, right? So often, you know, you'll notice, you know, somebody's coming in, they're angry, they're hot, they're fired. And what happens to your body? Are you aware of what happens to your body? And I always say, are you aware of what happens to your face? Because that's so incredibly important. Am I already yeah. by my face looking like, okay, I'm willing to listen to you? Or am I looking like I've already put up the defense mechanisms? And we do that for self-preservation, right? That fight or flight. But if we are aware of that and we have worked on our own self-regulation, we don't have to own that. That's not oftentimes, you know, as, as leaders, and especially as young leaders, and I was guilty of this for sure, we own all of that stuff. We own their reactions. We own those behaviors. We don't think we're doing a good enough job, all of those kind of things. But that's not for us to own. The only person that we actually can control is ourselves. And we assume that we can control everybody else. And I don't know if it's age or wisdom or experience or all those things is understanding that really, I can't actually control anybody else's behavior. I can engage in conversation. I can engage in dialogue. I can hopefully have them reflect on their own behavior, but ultimately I can't change it. And so I can change how I respond to it. And that's all that I can change. And so it's really working on self and working on my own self-regulation skills and how I'm going to respond to those very stressful situations, because they are. Mm -hmm. And how am I going to react? Because that's what I'm in control of. That's a lot of brain science that you just alluded <laughs> to there, <laughs> right? Like you're trying to do what you can to train your brain to avoid your amygdala hijacking the reasoning part of your mm -hmm. brain right up here. Yeah. It takes a lot of practice, it, I would imagine. It takes a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and over the years, I feel like I've gotten better at it. Do I ever think I'm perfect? Absolutely not. Because there are still things that trigger you. Mm -hmm. But it's also being aware of your own triggers. Why does that trigger you? Is it something that they're saying that you see in yourself? Or is it something that's come from, you know, a past experience? So knowing, you know, what things really get under your skin, right? And okay, that gets under my skin. Why? And instead of reacting right at that moment, taking that moment to think, okay, why did that get under my skin? Like, what about that really bothered me? Okay. Now I taking that few minutes of breath, I can respond better. And it's really, it's looking at me, not looking at them because our, our gut, right? You're in a good, I won't say fight, but you're in a good argument is they're all wrong and I'm all right. And when you say it's not about being right or wrong, it's about listening and understanding, then you don't get there. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, philosophically, we don't want it to be a fight. Like it doesn't need to be a fight. Mm -hmm. So it takes two people to fight. If you're not willing to fight, then it's not a fight. And so it's really, what can I control? I can control myself. And that's a hard lesson. And it's a, it's a long lifetime lesson. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how, um, how, you know, in a lot of the work that I'm doing with, with our high school uh, department heads and principals right now, or assistant principals, is that we're, we're examining our assessment and grading practices really, um, it, it, people believe often that it's they're they're the same, um, so we really try to set them apart. So if we're looking specifically at grading practices, and we we've been spending a few years now looking at how should we set up our grade books and how do we determine final grades. The question used to be how do we calculate final grades. So you know we we've made quite a bit of headway in terms of using um, professional judgment there. Um, <clears throat> But sometimes we, we still have those, those legacy practices of when we were in school yeah. and, you know, grading is now part of, um, it, it's about learning and it's about behavior. So really those grades, you know, we, we have to be really careful about making sure that our grades are only reflecting the learning. And mm -hmm. so teachers feel very strongly about that. And so do our administrators. So I'm just curious because they feel so strongly about it, that emotion that we were talking about before, what what types of questions or conversations do you do you try to engage when you're inviting 
instructional leaders, so principals, assistant principals, department heads, you're inviting them to really consider, you know, their grading practices and how they might honor the equity and the individual experiences of our of our students and that cultural responsiveness there in terms of grading. Well, I think that really comes back to are we differentiating, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, ultimately we have to give a grade. We all know that. Mm-hmm. And and there are some very strong feelings on that. Mm-hmm. I always challenged my uh, teachers to look at are we seeing progress? And how do we know we're seeing progress? And if we're, if we're only, and I, I, again, I don't want to use those final summative assessments, but if we're only using those final summative assessments and we're assessing on two different topics, can you tell me about progress for that student? Or did they just ace unit one and fail unit B, right? Um, so again, what progress are, are our students making and how are they showing you that learning? And again, I, you know, I go back to, you know, because I started in such a diverse um, school, we couldn't do the same for every kid. It just, it, it wasn't reasonable. It's, it's not, still not reasonable, right? Our kids are so different. So it's how can a child that is brand new to our country show their learning without us making assumption that they don't know anything because maybe they don't speak the language well? Um, how do we see the progress in them? And teachers, tell me, have they changed from day one in your class Today, 40 in your class, and how do you know it? And instead of talking personally in my experience, which is limited, instead of talking about what is the final grade that they are going to receive, it is what is the progress that that child has made? And more importantly, how do you know it? And so those kind of conversations were always really interesting uh, around the table because that really challenged some of my teachers when they were saying, well, you know, they didn't do well on this quiz, and then they did well on this quiz, and then they didn't do well on this quiz. Okay, so is there progress there, or are you are you analyzing two very different areas? I hope that answers your question. I think so. I'm just I'm wondering about um, the role of of professional judgment, mm-hmm. and and how how we can how we can help our our, our leaders and our, and our teachers really think about the value of professional judgment and making sure that that judgment about learning isn't clouded by judgment about behavior. Like how how does that (laughs) conversation, this question. I was going to say that's a, that is a, that is, that is a challenging question, right? Because it is, it's going back to individual teachers and it's going back to individual teacher and administrators past experiences. Right. And so if you generally have kids who are successful in your school or in your classroom, depending on the subject you teach, particularly if you're in a high-level high school subject, you're going to have very different assumptions than if you're teaching grade two and all of your uh, kiddos come into your class with all kinds of needs. They haven't been streamed anywhere. They're all those kind of things. So your assumptions are going to be very, very different. So it is, first of all, Looking at those assumptions through those eyes, culturally, where have you been? What are your experiences? And then it's saying, okay, since we know that, now can we look at this differently? Because I think professional judgment on teachers' parts is so incredibly important. Uh, We have to honor what our teachers do. But you're right, it is sometimes shining the light on, is this truly a behavior issue or is this an assessment issue or an academic issue? So really making sure we have those conversations to interrogate that possibility. Okay, but I'd never use that word interrogate. <laughs> okay. I would have a crucial conversation crucial to understand com- yeah. the why. Yeah. Tell me why you're seeing this with this student. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And again, we all know best performance from students happens with relationship first. So is the behavior coming because of engagement, relationship, why is it's the why. And, you know, in a big high school, it's a, it's almost impossible for a administrator to get around to find out the whys of why of every kid. It's almost impossible for every department head. So it needs to be those global conversations that start first and then drilling down should there be particular issues. But it is, it is ultimately conversation. We're not making any change by mandating anything. Indeed. This is very true. Yeah, policy doesn't change behavior. Absolutely. Yeah, right. And people people need to be heard, understood why. Why are you making those? 
And, you know, and rightfully so. If I've taught physics 30 my whole entire life, I get a certain level of student who is going to be there. And if somebody challenges that certain level because they see the world differently, that challenges maybe my whole practice of the last 25 years. And that's hard. Because now I have to rethink how I teach. And sometimes that's really difficult. Thank you. All right. One more question before we wrap up sure. today. What is one dream you have for education? Oh, that's easy. Um, my dream for education is that every kid uh, in our schools, every kid everywhere, uh, feels engaged and important and invested in their own learning. And that kids connect in a way that is going to um, not only produce good learners, but are going to produce good citizens. And we only can control what happens in our classrooms. We can't control what happens out in the world. But giving kids that good basis for that so that they feel like they are cared for, loved, engaged, and good learners is my ultimate dream. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us today on The Learning Curve. My yes. pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. abilities and intelligence can be developed through effort, effective strategies, and dedication to learning. So how can we cultivate this mindset in our classrooms? First and foremost, it's crucial to establish a supportive and safe environment where students feel comfortable taking risks and making mistakes. We must create a culture that celebrates effort and values the learning process as much as products or results. It is important to reframe mistakes as opportunities to learn and grow so that we can help ourselves move down to the path of success. Next, let's reframe challenges as opportunities for growth. Encourage students to view setbacks as a normal part of the learning journey by emphasizing the importance of perseverance and resilience, we help students develop the belief that they can overcome obstacles and achieve their goals with determination and hard work. Providing effective feedback is another key aspect of fostering a growth mindset. Instead of focusing so solely on grades or final outcomes, let's shift our attention to highlighting the effort, strategies, and progress students make along the way. Specific and constructive feedback helps students understand that their actions and choices contribute to their growth. Collaboration also plays a significant role in cultivating a growth mindset, encouraging peer-to-peer -peer learning and creating opportunities for students to work together is also very important. By fostering a sense of community and supporting one another, students gain diverse perspectives and develop vital teamwork and communication skills. Lastly, we must lead by example. As educators, we have the privilege of modeling a growth mindset for our students. Share personal stories of challenges and triumphs and discuss how you overcome obstacles in your own life. By showing vulnerability and demonstrating that growth is possible at any age, we inspire our students to adopt a similar mindset. In conclusion, fostering a growth mindset in the classroom empowers students to become lifelong learners who embrace challenges and persevere through difficulties. By creating a safe and supportive environment, reframing challenges, providing effective feedback, promoting collaboration, and modeling a growth mindset ourselves, we unlock the full potential of our students and set them up for success in the classroom and beyond. Unmistakable Impact by Jim Knight. An unmistakable impact, a partnership approach for dramatically improving instruction, Jim Knight, a recognized authority in instructional coaching, provides teachers and educational leaders with a compelling rationale and practical roadmap for implementing a partnership approach to professional learning. As educators, our ultimate goal is to continually improve the quality of education we provide to students. 
So Jim Knight's book serves as a comprehensive resource in this regard and should be on every instructional leader or coach's reading list. Unmistakable Impact looks at transforming traditional professional development, shifting from a top-down approach to a collaborative model. Knight's focus on the partnership principles, equality, choice, voice, reflection, dialogue, praxis, and reciprocity prioritizes dialogue, empathy, and mutual respect between teachers, principals, and coaches, leading to a more effective teacher-centered learning experience. By embedding these principles into the fabric of instructional leadership, educational leaders can foster a more receptive, reflective, and proactive learning environment. With a focus on the role of coaching in teacher development, Knight posits that coaches should act as partners, promoting a collaborative and growth mindset atmosphere, which contrasts sharply with the traditional evaluative role of coaches and has the potential to revolutionize how we think about professional development in schools. Unmistakable Impact provides valuable resources like coaching checklists, self-evaluations, and reflection questions. These tools provide immediate utility to any educational leader seeking to improve their instructional techniques. In addition, a list of resources at the end of each chapter is included to allow readers to dive deeper into the topics addressed. Unmistakable Impact offers a powerful argument for a partnership approach to improving instruction that respects the professionalism and autonomy of teachers, while providing them with the tools that they need to be continually learning and growing in their practice. So for these reasons, it is recommended that every instructional leader and teacher should read this book, not just for their own professional growth, but also for the potential of an unmistakable impact on their students' learning experiences. That brings us to the end of another episode of the Learning Curve ECSD podcast. We hope you found today's discussions informative and inspiring. As we conclude, we encourage you to reflect on the key takeaways from this episode. Embracing growth mindset allows us to view challenges as opportunities, learn from failures, and continuously strive for personal and academic growth. Remember, the power to transform lies within each of us. We would like to express our gratitude to our guest for sharing her expertise and perspectives, as well as to you, our dedicated listeners, who make this podcast possible. Your continued support motivates us to explore new frontiers of knowledge and provide valuable insights to fuel your own learning journey in assessment. Don't forget to stay connected with us on social media via our Instagram page at ECSD Learning, where we share resources from all of our consultants here at Learning Services. Please like and subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date about future episodes as we delve deeper into topics that empower educators. Until next time, let the power of growth mindset guide you as you embark on a journey of continuous learning. Thank you for joining us on the Learning Curve ECSD podcast, wishing you a journey filled with growth, discovery, and limitless possibilities. <laughs>